everyone. Recently we were going through um, a series on Daniel. Pete asked me to read um, Daniel 5 to you. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 5. Okay, it's going to come up on the screen behind me. Daniel 5, the writing on the wall. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll be able to tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read the writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription means. Mene, mene, tekel, pasan. This is what the words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided 
and given to Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed round his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Beth. That was uh, well read. Dramatic, dramatic words. Very, very powerful, kind of striking passage from the Bible. Beth read it very well for us. You know, it's, the Bible's full of challenging passages, and going through uh, a book in the Bible like we are on Sunday nights, it, it kind of forces you to face passages that you'd rather not preach on. <laughs> but that's all right. That's one of those passages tonight. But anyway, I'm not going to tell you how I'm feeling about it tonight. You're just going to, you're just going to hear and uh, hopefully hear things that are going to help you. Uh, Father, we thank you as we turn to your word. This is history we're reading about and we can learn from it today. We can learn from people's mistakes. And God, most of all, you've got a plan and purpose for our lives in the here and now. We ask God as we come into your presence, you'd speak to us and maybe challenge us and provoke us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a guy driving along. He was, he was going a bit fast, to be honest. A police helicopter was up in the sky and had been following him and, and had clocked his speed. They radioed to one of the guys on the ground and a police car pulled him over and booked him. And the guy said, well, how on earth did you know I was speeding? And the guy who was booking him went like that. He said, oh, don't tell me he's against me as well. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. Is God against you? Big question. You know, your, your answer in that one's going to determine how you live. Is God against you? This passage here, I guess it raises this massive question. Is God against you? Let me just kind of zoom in in this passage for a moment. Uh, this was his, an historic event. Lots of things were going on here. The book of Daniel demonstrates that God is very much involved and interested in world events although he doesn't necessarily condone world events, he certainly intervenes and he gets involved with it. And this passage was written in about 538 BC. Belshazzar, who was the king here, the dude who looks freaked, right? his, his dad Nebuchadnezzar had been the king before him. And this was a large party where a thousand people had gathered. Now many historians record this party. Many secular historians who, who have nothing to do with the Bible actually make records of this vast party that this guy put on for his nobles. It says it went on for a long period of time. It wasn't just a kind of a few hours. It was a long, long party. A thousand people were there. There's Josephus, Herodias, and uh, Xenophon. He, they all recorded this particular party. So it was an historic event. At the party, they described this illustrious party that he put on where there were even ostriches uh, dragging behind them baskets of fruit and nuts and kind of various delicacies. And the, apparently, as people walked into the party, the atmosphere, it was so thick with the incense that they were burning that people got intoxicated just as they walked into the huge chamber where this party was going on. It was a kind of BC rave, you know what I'm saying? This was something going on here. Belshazzar was just uh, getting the dudes together. As this was happening... He had an encounter with God. Not the place you expect to have an encounter with God. And it was as he was drunk, he said, bring the, the goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. So he brought the gold and silver goblets. Now, let me just tell you the significance of that. This was a, a place called Babylon. It's modern-day Iraq, okay? And what had happened was the Jewish people who had a temple in Jerusalem, they had gone into exile. They had been kind of overrun by the Babylonians. They'd been taken away from their native land and they were now in exile in Babylon. They took with the Jews a whole load of the treasures uh, and all the different riches and articles of gold and silver from Jerusalem. With that came the gold and silver goblets. Now these gold and silver goblets had originally been made for the temple of, for the worship of the God of heaven. The God who made everything, yeah? The God who made us and, and gave us life and breath. Yet Belshazzar grabs these goblets and instead of using them for the purpose for which they were made as part of the ceremonial worship that the Jews had for the true God, he used them, he got drunk off them, and while he was at it, he started worshipping the gods of gold and of silver. Daniel rightly points out in the passage that Beth read, you know, gold and silver don't see and don't think and don't have a brain and don't have breath in them. Praising inanimate 
objects. You see, human beings have always wanted to worship, but sadly they've often pointed the worship the wrong direction many times. Human beings are made to worship though. And as he was doing this, as he was in the middle of this kind of revelry, something happened. And it says in verses 5 and 6, And suddenly fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstands in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees knocked. You know, it's a very kind of graphical description of what was going on here. But it was an awesome moment. I mean, you can understand. I would probably be freaked out myself if I saw a hand randomly appear, right? And right on the wall. It was an awesome moment. Amazingly, a few hundred years before that, there was a prophet called Isaiah. You can find Isaiah in the middle of your Bible. Do that in the middle. And it typically falls on Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied this exact night. Let me read to you. Isaiah chapter 21, verses 3 to 6 and verse 9. Listen to this description. My body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat and they drink. Get up, you officers. Oil your shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go put a post an outlook and have him report to me what he sees. Verse 9. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses and he brings back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie scattered on the ground. Isaiah prophesies the fall of Babylon. This night that we've just read about in Daniel chapter 5, that was the night that happened. Babylon, the whole empire, that night fell. And the Medes and the Persians took over the... And this is a historic fact. And Isaiah prophesies 200 years before the historic fact and he describes the events of that night. He describes a party where a guy gets freaked out. <laughs> and it, we just read that there. You see, God being wise knows what's going on. And that very night, as we read in Daniel 5, zooming back in verse 30 and 31, it says that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. Darius the Medes took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That night was the fall of Babylon. Isaiah predicted it 200 years prior. The city of Babylon was thought to be impregnable. You know, this was a huge city with massive walls. The walls, it was a square city. It was 14 miles by 14 miles. The walls were brick and they went for 56 miles round the circumference of the city. The walls were 300 foot high and 25 foot thick, right? kind of impregnable you'd agree right there was a second wall just just to make sure that they were definitely secure 75 foot behind the first wall they built a second wall right a few insecure kind of guys in the middle there <laughs> a few complexes going on there and the walls were were dug deep so the walls went 35 foot below ground so even trying to bury down you weren't going to get very far not even a mole could get into Babylon they had 250 towers and they were 450 foot high these towers that were dotted around the walls. You understand, this was a, a massive feat for the Medes and the Persians to in any way break in. Historians describe the events of that night, that the Medes and the Persians, they broke in by means of the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates went right through the city of Babylon, and they broke in, they, 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 they followed the river into the city. Basically, they just walked right in because all the guards were drunk. This was a, a mass party that was taking place in this whole city, and the Medes and the Persians broke in. They ransacked the place to kill Belshazzar, the king. And they basically took over the whole of the worlds at the time. They, they became the new world superpower. They became the new reigning force on planet Earth. These were massive events, folks. And you have to understand that God, in the midst of all those events, was doing something. Is God interested in world events? I believe he is. Should we be interested in world events? Yeah. Many Christians, their attitude towards world events is, you know, oh, we'll stuff the world. I just want to go to heaven. And that's not the message of the Bible. We sang that song in a moment ago. You know, we want to see your kingdom come. God, how can we keep silent when there's a city held in chains? You know, our, our deep desire is that we positively impact our city. Not just in some spiritual floaty way, i.e., let's all go to heaven. But also we want to help you on earth. 
You know, if you've got an addiction, we want to help you overcome that. If you're a single parent mum, we want to provide support there. If you're needy in whatever practical and spiritual way possible, church is there to meet the needs. Not just preach, but to genuinely, hands-on, meet the needs of people. God wants us to be very much involved with the world. Daniel was a guy like that. He outlived five kings. And he brought two of those heathen kings to faith in the true God. You know, this guy was a huge influencer, and he didn't hold back. He got involved. He didn't get scared off by the secular world. He got his sleeves rolled up and got involved. And he had the key. He spoke in Babylonian, but he heard from heaven. That was the key. He knew the language of the people. Yet he had the divine connection. So Daniel got involved. We've got to be people who get involved. We had Dave Carr preach at our church maybe three months ago now. Now Dave Carr passes a very large church down in Solihull, just outside Birmingham, Birmingham, the Solihull Renewal Centre. And uh, thousands of people gather there every week. And he's a very influential guy, making a big difference there, practically. Several years ago, about ten years ago, he had a vision of Jesus. And in the vision, Jesus spoke to him very accurately about a number of world events that were going to happen in governments in Britain and around the world. Most of which has happened exactly as he saw in the vision. I want to say that God sometimes wants to have us a step ahead of the game. I just want to kind of give you us all a glimpse tonight into the reality that actually God is sovereign. While God doesn't necessarily agree with the world events that are taking place, he wants us to not be unaware, but aware, and have a voice, a positive voice, into this world in which we're living. While the, the communists were plotting the downfall of the Russian government, and they were drawing up the communist manifesto, the communist regime oppressed Russia for about 70 years. While that was taking place, church leaders were meeting literally across the roads, and they were debating and arguing about how long their vestments should be. Duh. They missed their moment. So many Christians are playing Christian games and getting caught up with side issues rather than actually making a positive impact in the world. Andrew Owen, who's, who oversees the work here and uh, to whom we're accountable, he's an awesome guy. He's, he's our pastor through in Destiny Church in Glasgow and a real mentor to me, a great friend. Andy was telling us that he, he every year goes to this thing called the President's Breakfast in Washington where it's a, it's a Christian conference with many senators and world leaders and people from different states, not just Western countries, but Muslim states and various people gather. And uh, it's, it's teaching, equipping people to be an influence in the name of Jesus in the world. And Andrew, at that particular conference, was talking to Senator and his wife, American senators. And he was talking to them, and they were, talk- they were just recently become Christians. And they were saying to Andrew that so often when Christian come, Christians used to come and speak to us, we knew it was for one of two reasons. Either they wanted money, or they wanted to complain about something. What? That hacks me off. But one day, a Christian came to me. This is what the senator said. And said to me, we really appreciate the work you're doing for our nation. Is there anything we can do for you? Here was a Christian not wanting to get something, not with an agenda, but simply saying, is there something we can do for you? Can we pray for you? Can we provide support for you? Is there anything we can do for you? The person said, no, I'm fine, thanks. But a few weeks later, the person came back again and and asked again, is there something we can do for you? And demonstrated genuine interest. This built a relationship, and this relationship resulted in the senator and his wife coming to faith in Jesus. You see, folks, we've got to be a positive voice. Ray McCauley made a dramatic statement, and I think it's true. He said that Christians so often are known for what they stand against rather than what they stand for. And it's, it's absolutely essential that we're a positive voice and a, a constructive voice in our world. And yes, there's certain standards we believe in. Of course there is. Yeah, we've got standards. We've got, we believe in absolute truth. We're not relativists. We, we believe in a God. We believe in a God who sets the rules. And I think, yeah, abide by his rules. It will go well. But we also know that this God who sets the rules loves the people who breaks the rules. So God's got something to say about enhancing people's lives. We've got a role to play here to make a positive impact in our world. And actually, Daniel's involvement very much in, in the political world and in, in the secular world in which he was involved was very positive. So maybe some of you, maybe God is calling some of you to become a voice, he, especially here in Edinburgh with the devolved government right on our doorstep here. And it's a very important season for us in Scotland. So God, I believe, is 
interested in world affairs, and so should we be. But there was this guy, Belshazzar. God had a few things to say to him. Belshazzar, having seen this writing on the wall, calls in Daniel. Daniel, by this point, was about 80 to 90 years old. He had a reputation. He had served under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's dad, and his reputation was that, man, this guy is spiritually aware. Belshazzar's mother said he's got the spirit of the holy gods in him. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? Spirit of the holy gods. Daniel had this reputation that you know, some, there was something divine about him. There was something special and unique. And Daniel came in, and Daniel reminded Belshazzar of his father. And he said, listen, your dad had blown it. Your dad got full of pride, and God humbled him. You've gone and made the same mistake. You, have not, you haven't learned from your father's mistakes. You've blown it again. And in verse 22, he, he, he kind of describes his faults. And he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. In other words, you weren't ignorant to what your father had done. You didn't learn from his mistakes. You've gone and done it yourself. Instead, you've set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've taken the goblets from his temple and brought, that were brought to you and, uh, and your nobles and your wives and your porcupines, sorry, your concubines, the prickly bunch. They drank the wine from them, and you praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. God holds human beings' hands. God holds our lives, our breath, our very moments in his hands. Therefore, he sent the hands and wrote the inscription. He was three crimes that, that Daniel had committed. The first one was pride. The second one was that he had misused items that were designed to be used for the honor of God. And the third thing was he got involved with worshiping false gods. And he should have known better. His dad had an encounter with the true God. And he should have learned from his dad. The first problem, pride. Last week we talked about pride. And last week we shared the verse in James 4 and verse 6. It says that God is opposed to the... Wakey, wakey. Rising shinings. Okay, let's try again. God is opposed... That was a quote from Madagascar, incidentally. Okay. One, two, three. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. Is God for you? Well, that's the question we asked at the beginning. Is God for you? Well, typically, yes. But if you're proud, he's opposed to you, the Bible says. Whoa. And as I said last week, you know, if you're going to have anyone against you, don't have God Almighty, the creator of the universe, who holds your very life in his hands against you. All right? That's the wrong guy to mess with. You know what I'm saying? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Wrong answer. You know what I'm saying? So we believe God is for us, but if you're proud, the Bible says, he is opposed to you. Wow. Pride. I quoted this morning from, there's a book that's been published. It's a business book. From Good to Great. It did a study of the top 1,400 companies in the world. And these companies that were very high-achieving companies, uh, huge turnovers, very successful, they analyzed these companies and they kind of narrowed it down to the top 12. And they said, okay, in these top 12 companies, they looked at the CEOs, the managing directors of these top 12 companies, and they said, okay, what is it that makes these particular individuals such great leaders that got their companies to where they're at today? And they analyzed this. And in their analysis, they narrowed it down to the two top qualities. Right? The best of the best, the two top qualities. Quality number one, surprisingly enough, and it is surprising, was humility. Quality number two was the ability to stick with it and not quit. But humility. You see, often we, don't, we wrongly assume that greatness and fame and success and influence does not go hand in hand with humility. That's because we've thought humanistically. God's way of doing things is that greatness and humility are actually held right together there. You see, all the great leaders in the Bible, you look at Moses, the Bible says he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. In fact, he wrote that, right? And you had to be meek to write that, yeah? Moses was incredibly meek, but he, he led in his day about two million people right out of Egypt, out of slavery, into, heading towards the promised land. Great leader, great influencer, you know, big guy in his time, but he, the Bible says, was incredibly meek. Jesus. I mean, you ain't going to get a greater leader than Jesus. The world's most famous person. We love him. He's awesome. You're great, Jesus. And Jesus, the Bible says, was humble, meek, gentle-spirited. And this is our example of leadership. 
It's not the kind of boisterous guy who fights his way to the top and says, no matter what it takes, I'm going to fight my way up to up the ladder. I'm going to tread in as many people as I can to get there. That is not a good example of leadership. Some people have got there that way, but they ain't going to last. God's way of leadership is the way that you can keep your conscience intact. God's way of leadership is that you can succeed, but others around you succeed as well. God's way of leadership is going to benefit everyone. So here is pride going on in this guy's life. The second crime he committed was he misused articles that had been dedicated originally to the worship of God, but he was using them for his bevy. Yeah? The way I see this is this. God has given us all gifts. God has blessed you with many great gifts. Some of you, your gift is in music. Some of you, your gift is in administration. Some of you, your gift is in entrepreneurialism. Some of you, big word, big word, managed it. You know, some of you, your gift is in, in big words. Some of you, your gift is in creativity or writing or the arts. Some of you are very logical in your thinking. Praise the Lord for you. You know, some of you, you you've got a huge, a massive ability from God to, to be able to make money. You're, you're just great at generating wealth. You have so many different abilities and God-given talents that are distributed amongst us all. But the question is, what are you using your gift for? Are you spending it on yourself? Are you using your gift for selfish ends? That's what Belshazzar was doing. He was using this, these things that had been dedicated originally for the glory of God. And he was using it on himself. In God's eyes, that was a big crime. Are you using what God has blessed you with just to pay the bills and on your own ends? Or are you saying, God, you've entrusted to me many things. You know what, God? I'm going to do everything I possibly can with every breath you give me, with all the energy and all my waking hours to give us everything I've got so that my life, my gift, my money, my talent and ability can build your thing on planet Earth. I believe your gift was for his house. For his house, for church. You see, I believe in church. I don't just believe... When you think church, many people think kind of um, bells and smells, stone building with steeple, bell. Now, sometimes it can be in a stone building with a steeple. That's not the issue. But you see, some people think of church as a small, insignificant thing. See, when you look at the Bible, what the Bible says about church, it's talking about an incredible people. A massive force on planet Earth. People who, who gain ground by love. People who have a voice. People where the miraculous is the norm. People who are influential and who are credible. People who actually shape their generation. And I tell you what, church is where your gift is designed for. This guy misused the stuff that had been dedicated for God's house. And many times we're misusing the gifts that God gave you for the house. You're using it for your own selfish ends. This was one of his crimes. The third crime was he worshipped false gods. The ironic thing Daniel points out to Belshazzar is in verse 23 it says, You praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see, hear or understand, but you did not honour the gods who holds in your hands his life and all your ways. As he was with his breath worshipping these false gods, he failed to recognize that God actually gave him that breath in the first place. God gave him the ability to live. God holds our life in his hands. I believe that God is intimately acquainted with our ways. Acts 17, 27 and 28 says, He's not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move and have our being. Whether you call yourself Christian or are the most unreligious person on planet earth. The Bible says, in him, you live, move, and have your being. So whether you like it or not, we're confronted with this fact called God. And the Bible says, in him, we live, move, and have our being. Now many people acknowledge him, many people don't. But it doesn't take away from the truth in the Bible, that in him we live, move, and have our being. He holds our very breath. He puts in us the ability even be alive in the first place that's a kind of sobering awesome thought I believe that God is much closer to us than we realize he absolutely is he is here and he's with you wherever you go he sees all God is closer than you think Psalm 139 verse 7 says where can I go from your spirit where can I flee from your presence 
God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time, all at once. Now we can't figure that because we're in one place at one time. But God isn't. God is everywhere. Five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen and his mum said, could you go into the larder and get a tin of tomato soup, please? And the larder was a dark place. And Johnny said, mum, I, I, can't, I can't go into the larder because it's dark. In a Christian family, the mum said, no, don't worry, Jesus will be with you in there. And I said, no, I, I can't do it, mum. I can't, I can't go in the larder. I'm, not, I'm too scared. His mum said, no, listen, don't worry, Johnny. You know, Jesus will be with you in the larder. So he said, okay. So he went over to the larder and opened the door slightly. Oh, it's dark, it's dark. So he shouts in, Jesus, if you're in there, could you pass the tomato soup? <laughs> God is everywhere. God is with us. God is so near. Listen, folks, he's so near. That alone should impact the way we live. Right there. It should just impact the way we live. It, sh- it should give us a sense of, whoa, as we're walking every day in our lives. He sees your thoughts. He knows the words you're going to speak even before you speak them. He knows your motives. As human beings, we tend to judge others, yeah? We tend to judge others by their actions, yet we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions. (laughs) But God knows all. God sees the motives of our hearts. God sees thoughts in our heads. God sees the words we're going to speak even before we speak them. Wow. That will freak some of you out. That will give comfort to some of you. (laughs) None of us, okay? It freaks us out, right? Okay, it freaks us out. But then here we see God's judgment on this guy, Belshazzar. In verse 25 to 28, it says that this is the inscription that was written, Mini, Mini, Teke, Parson. And Daniel says, this is what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered your days of your reign and brought them to an end. In other words, sunshine, God's drawn a line in your life. Full stop, it's over. He's had enough of you. I mean, that's heavy duty stuff, isn't it? And he didn't say meanie, he says meanie, meanie. He really wants them to get it, right? Meanie, meanie, okay? I'll say it twice. He's drawn a line on your life, sunshine. That's it, over. Takey, you've been weighed in the scales and found to be wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, Daniel was hearing totally from God. He wasn't like in on the plot, you know what I'm saying? He prophetically knew exactly what was going to happen. And it wasn't like months later. It was that night. And historians will prove that. That on the night that party took place, the Medes and the Persians broke in. But we're seeing a bit of insight into what actually happened that night. That God was saying a few things about life and about how we should be acting before him. See, I believe sometimes God will intervene. I I believe God's a good God, but I also know he's a judge. Boy, I know he's a judge. And sometimes, let's just talk about that for a moment. God sometimes just draws a line right... It's just that's it. I've had enough. He draws a line along someone's life. And that actually happens. In the Bible, in, in Acts chapter 13, we see the Apostle Paul. He's trying to talk to a proconsul, uh, an official, about Jesus. The Apostle Paul's sharing with this proconsul, this uh, government official, about Jesus, and he's talking to him about faith. But there's a, there's a sorcerer who's hanging around the proconsul, who's one of his friends, and he's kind of interrupting Paul and trying to get in the way and contradicting Paul and Paul just got hacked off and he said, right, that's it. From now on, you're blind. And right there, right there, you read in Acts 13, right there he's blind. This sorcerer, this magician, went blind instantly. There's another instance in the Old Testament. It's in Second Chronicles 26, where a king who had been doing all right in life, he just got a bit cocky, a bit full of himself, proud. And he, he started mucking around with the things of God and he was instantly struck with leprosy. My dear friend, Ivan, who heads up uh, the work in India. We're great friends, and we really get on well, and we, talk, we love God, and we, we take time together encouraging each other in faith in God. And this guy, Ivan, he walks with God. He, he does our healing meetings sometimes here. And uh, he's, in fact, he's going to be coming in a month or so's time to do another healing meeting here. And Ivan has got a real depth of relationship with God. He walks with God. Ivan was telling me the account of the orphanage in India. You see, God gave him a dream, and this dream resulted, we talked about this this morning, God gave him a dream, and this dream resulted in an orphanage being birthed in India. Now, he set a man to run the orphanage. 
and this was up and running and there was kids coming in and getting support and help. How many people know that the orphans are close to God's heart? How many people that God takes personally stuff that goes on against orphans? I mean, seriously, he really does. The guy that Ivan had set in charge to look after the orphanage originally died suddenly. He had an illness that he hadn't told Ivan about and he died, he passed away. A dear, dear man. But his brother, who was a reprobate, took the land and kicked the orphans off. He said, I'll have the land for myself. This guy was a gambling drunk. He was a reprobate. And he just kicked... His brother had died. He kicked the orphans off. He didn't care one iota about the orphans. And said, right, I'm having the land for myself. Ivan's father-in-law, who lives nearby there in Orissa, was saying, you can't do this. You can't, you can't just walk in and kick the orphans off. You can't. It's unrighteous. It's wrong. And the guy said, tough. I'm doing it. It's my land. So they prayed. And within a day, the guy dropped dead. So you don't mess with Ivan. <laughs> And he's my friend, all right? <laughs> now, you don't mess with God. See, when it comes to orphans and widows, see, God's very interested in justice, incredibly. You think your heart breaks when you see suffering. I'm telling you what, our God is moved by the cause of the oppressed. Our God's heart breaks for the needy and the oppressed on our doorstep and globally. You can't live in this life claiming to be Christian and ignore the plight of the needy. You're a hypocrite if you do. You've got to send your money. You've got to do something with your actions. You've got to speak up for the rights of those who can't speak up for themselves. That's what true Christianity is all about. And God is moved by these people's needs. That's why God just drew a line on that guy in India. So God does intervene. God's a heavyweight, folks. It says in this passage that God speaking to Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the scales and found to be wanting. God has scales. God is interested in justice. He weighs up our actions. He weighs up our deeds. He weighs up our motives. God, I want to tell you, is a judge. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that man is destined, that's us, we're destined to die once, then after that, to face judgment. Folks, no offense to anyone, but we don't believe in reincarnation. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, right? Then become a snail. No, it doesn't say that. It says he's appointed to die once and then to face judgment. At the end of our lives, the Bible says we will be held to account. And you know what? Sometimes we think, well, what about the crimes? What about those who haven't been brought to justice? What about those who haven't, who haven't been dealt with, with jail and with the criminal system? I tell you what, everyone's going to have to stand for God. Everyone. Not one person will get away from the fact that every single one of us at the end of our lives, however soon or late that comes, will stand before God and face judgment. The Bible in Romans 14 verse 10 says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. There was a time where a king in Hungary had become incredibly aware of his brokenness and the way he'd been living was kind of sinful and he was having this I mean, huge guilt trip he was going through. He asked to speak to his brother, and his, his brother came before the king, his brother. The king said to him, listen, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm a great sinner, and I'm really scared to meet God. His brother kind of laughed at him. He said, what? <laughs> and he just kind of walked out. He thought it was a big joke. In that time, there was a bit of a custom that when someone was going to get executed, they would have the, a guy standing outside their house with a trumpet, and they'd blow the trumpet... And that would signal to the person in the house that, right, that's it, your time's up. And the executioner would lead them out and get them executed. So that night, the king sent this guy with the trumpet to his brother's house. It's in the middle of the night. Right? His brother was sleeping. Right, okay, he did this trumpet thing, right? I don't know, I'm just, just kind of put you in the context here. Just kind of did this trumpet thing, and his brother thought, what? What? And he knew what that meant. And he got changed and he went out and there was the executioner and they led him into the king's presence. And he came before the king's presence and he fell on his knees and said, what have I done? My brother, can you tell me what have I done? What have I done to offend you? And the brother of the king answered, if in the sight of a human executioner you tremble, should I not have been grievous? Should I not have been sad? Should I not have been scared of the possibility of having to stand before God? We're going to have to stand before God. That should absolutely affect how we live. Absolutely. We're going to be held to account. We should be looking after how we're dealing with ourselves. So there's going to be a judgment day. Here's the challenge. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. Among them 
we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And by nature we're children of wrath, even as the rest. The Bible says, as human beings, we are children of wrath. Okay, this is the fun bit, all right? If we're going to have a happy message tonight, we are children of wrath, the Bible says. Whoa! God is hacked off about us. Right? Here's a motivational thought for you. He's hacked off, big style. Because we're sinners, the Bible says. God's mad about you. And he's also mad at you. And that's the tension. He's mad at you. But he's also mad about you. The Bible says we're children of wrath. The judgment of God rests on the human race because of sin. Sin is wretched, it's ungodly, it's filthy, and it's in every one of our lives. He sees our motives. And I tell you what, the things we think, we do action certain things. We follow through with a number of things. And we're pretty downcast about that stuff. We're pretty repentant about that stuff. But you know, the stuff that goes on that we think and don't actually action, and you only know the depths that you and I have gone to in our thought life. But you know what? God sees, and he will hold us to account. Jesus said that even thinking adultery in God's sight is adultery. God said, if you, Jesus said, if you, if you even have anger towards your brother, you've committed murder. I mean, Jesus totally raised the bar here. That means we are children of wrath. God's wrath is on the human race. God is mad at us. But he's also mad about us. Okay, that's the bad news. It gets better now. The greatest expression of God's judgment ever seen on planet Earth happens 2,000 years ago where God poured out his absolute fury and judgment on one man and that man was called Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you how the Bible describes this event. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 4 to 8, the Bible says that yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It's true. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considers that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people? He did it for us, folks. To whom the stroke was due. We deserved it, but he took it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The good news is, folks, that God, while we are under the wrath of God, that God did not want to pour out his wrath on the human race. But nevertheless, justice needed to be done. So God poured out his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus took the full hit on our behalf of the wrath of God. It's like way back in the ye olden days in America when they were the pioneers that arrived and they were working away across the, the scrublands the big barren scrublands in, in the United States. They were traveling in caravan and convoy and they, would, they were going for miles and miles and one particular day they looked across and the wind was blowing towards them a massive fire that spread from horizon to horizon and it was going faster than they could ever go. They knew that the last river they had passed was so far back that they wouldn't be able to get there in time to rescue themselves. The fire was roaring its way towards them and they were right in the path of that fire and they were in for it. One of the kids cried out, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And one of the adults said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to burn a fire where we're standing and then we're going to stand in that patch. For where the fire has been, the fire cannot go. So they burnt a patch and they stood in that patch that had already been burnt. 
And when the fire passed, they were safe. And this is the good news, folks. And this is eternal good news. This is global good news. This is universal good news. This is the message, the whole message on which the Christian faith hangs and pivots. It's this message that we sinners deserve the wrath of God. And God sees our motives. God holds our very life and breath in his hands. But God was unwilling to pour out his wrath on us. So instead he poured out his wrath on Jesus. And as we place our lives in him, as we accept Jesus, as we put our faith in him, the wrath of God is satisfied because he took the hit for us. That's the Christian message. I mean, it's radical. Who would have thought of that other than God's? But that's good news. We've been given... Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. Yeah, yeah, come to Jesus. He'll make you happy. It's, it's, really, it's a life vest, right? You're thinking. Now grab holes. This is a lifeline for us human beings. As the old song goes, On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for the chosen race, and thus becomes our hiding place. Father, God, we, we see, I mean, it's a sobering message in Daniel 5, God, how you dealt very strongly with one particular king. And God, we realize that there are times where you, God, being a just God, will intervene, and you just draw a line. But God, I want to thank you that ultimately the Bible says you're slow to anger and abounding in love. And God, while it's the case that you are a judge, in your incredible love, you sent Jesus. And Jesus, you were willing to hang on the cross and die for our sins. And you took that brutal criminal death, not because you were a criminal, but Jesus, you took the brutal criminal death on behalf of us who are the sinners. Jesus, you took the judgment so that we could get the forgiveness. And Lord, we want to thank you tonight that forgiveness is available. Lord, I don't want to see anyone going to face you alone. I don't want to see anyone going to a lost eternity. I pray, God, that you'd help us to tell our precious world about the rescue plan of God that will help them avoid the judgment that is to come. But maybe tonight you're here and you're saying, Peter, I realize, man, that I am a sinner and I haven't asked God's forgiveness for my sin. Or maybe at some point you hadn't, but I mean, since then, you've just gone totally off track. You've acted like God isn't there. But tonight, I want to encourage you that while we're under God's judgment, the reality is that if we place our lives in His hands, then the judgment passes us by because Jesus took it for us. I want to urge you, come to Jesus Christ. Not because you're scared, not because you fear judgment, Come because of the God in heaven who loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to do that for you. He loves you with an intense love. He knows everything about you, yet he still loves you. And I want to encourage you, the Bible says, he gives grace to the humble. So don't be proud anymore. Humble yourself. Come to him. Ask him for his forgiveness. Give your life back to him. Allow your life to be a life that worships the true God through Jesus Christ. If that's you tonight, then I invite you just to come to God just now. And what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to pray a response prayer. I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray a response to God where you put your trust in Jesus and where you give your life to Him. I'm I'm going to pray a prayer and I invite you very simply to repeat this prayer after me. Repeat this prayer and make it the prayer from your own heart to God. So that's you tonight and you know that you need to commit your life to God. Ask your own forgiveness and get things right with God, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. Repeat it after me under your breath. Pray like this. Pray, Dear Lord God, God, thank you that you are the ultimate judge of planet Earth. And God, I realize that before you, I am a sinner. But God, right now, I'm coming to ask you for forgiveness. Jesus, thank you that you died for me on that cross that God you loved me so much that you made a way for me to be forgiven Jesus thank you for taking the judgment for me so that I could come before God forgiven 
and one day stand before God assured of heaven, not hell. Jesus, right now, I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me from all my sin. I choose no longer to live my old ways. And God, with your strength, I want to live for you now. Jesus, I believe after dying on that cross that you rose again. Jesus, I believe that today you're alive, risen from the dead. And I make this commitment tonight that I will follow you. I make you Lord of my life. I make you the boss. My Lord and my God. Thank you, God, for your love for me. Thank you, God, that you are for me. Thank you, God, for hearing my prayer. Thanks, God, for accepting me this evening. Amen. Okay, keep your eyes closed for a moment. Just while everyone's... Let's just keep praying for a moment. While everyone's praying, and eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer just there, then you've just done a momentous thing. You've, just, you've, you've, you've gone from death to life. Things have changed. Your eternity looks different. And that, that prayer you've just prayed is a very powerful prayer. Like, can I just ask, if anyone prayed that prayer just there, I want the opportunity just to pray for you. And what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front or get you to stand up. Nothing like that. Just very simple. Where are you sitting? If you prayed that prayer and you really meant it, can I, can I know that you did that? Can you just indicate that to me by raising your hand? And uh, thanks. Anyone else? Thanks. Thanks. Keep your hands up. Anyone else? You prayed that prayer. Where everyone else's eyes are closed, just raise your hand. Let me know you did it and I'll pray for you. Pop your hand up. Thank you. Anyone else before I pray? God, thank you for these four people. God, I thank you for each one of them tonight. God, they have prayed a serious prayer and they really meant it, God. And I want to thank you, God, that you accept them you embrace them as your children and I pray God they would know your forgiveness and you start tonight help them now God to walk with you and live for you from this day forward we thank you for hearing their prayer and accepting them this evening in Jesus name Amen Amen Amen